How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Buddy's House of Horror Podcast. Today, we've got another episode from the archives today, um, from way back in the day. This episode is actually all the way back from October 27th, 2017. It's one of the very first interviews we did on Two Nerds, a podcast, where we interviewed Laurie Brewster, of course, very critically acclaimed director. Um, He created Lord of Tears, The Unkindness of Ravens, and The Black Gloves was just about to release at the time of this interview. So this interview is quite a few years old. Of course, since then, The Black Loves has now been released, um, and he's working on a lot of new films. He had another film come out um, called The Devil's Machine. Of course, I reviewed all of these films on the House of Horror um, 31-day marathon last um, year in 2019. Um, So not this past year, 2020, but 2019, the first year where I did the full 31-day marathon. I did my Owl Manathon, where I took a look at all of Laurie Brewster's films that have been released. Again, he's always working on stuff. He has a new film that's coming out. It's like a fantasy epic, um, so I can't wait for that to come out. And hopefully I can have Laurie Brewster back on the show at some point to talk about some of these projects to sort of bridge the gap. But we're taking you back, as I said, to 2017. So yeah, without further ado, I'm just going to get right to the show. Again, this is a classic episode of Two Nerds, a podcast um, that was only available on YouTube until now, So this is the first time that you guys are getting it over on all of these um, podcast streaming sites. So again, if you guys haven't already, please make sure you go to my YouTube channel and subscribe. Um, Leave the original video a thumbs up if you liked it and leave a comment on it. And of course, if you like the show, make sure you subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening to the show. Make sure you subscribe. If they let you leave a rating and and a review, make sure you go ahead and do that. It really helps me out a lot, you guys. And yeah, again, so we're just going to get right to the show. So enjoy. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to bring you a special presentation of Two Nerds, a podcast. Your home for everything movies, movie, music, video games, and everything in between. With your hosts, Bunny the Bruiser and Dynamite, Jared Latchy. How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Two Nerds, a podcast. I am Buddy the Bruiser. And I'm Dynamite Jared. How you doing today, Jared? Uh, I'm tired. You're tired? Yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> We're at the brisk hour of 10 a.m. and you're this tired? I didn't go to bed till late last night, so uh, TLC and I was... The TLC was I last was, night. Oh, shit. And I was, just, I was re-watching and examining every match and every detail yeah. last night for the podcast well, it, and then... You texted me this morning, like, hey, today's our interview with Lori Brewster, and I was yes. like, oh, yeah. Today, <laughs> so, <laughs> today is an exciting day. It is. And so you were excited last night by wrestling, and today we have a very exciting interview. Um, he's a director and producer known for his horror films, Lord of Tears, Unkindness of Raven, Ravens, and most recently, The Black Gloves. Lori Brewster, how you doing, man? Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Of course. Very excited to have you. We've been following your career for a while so before we go ahead and get started um for the viewers out there how can they find you on social media find um where to buy your stuff and all that kind of stuff uh, yeah thanks buddy i mean if, if folks want to check out the weird ass horror films that i'm making uh they can check out a website uh, w.hexmedia.tv or they can just say hi to me on facebook just laurie brewster i'm always happy to get uh, friend requests from fellow horror fans because you know we're a community 
And uh, we've also got a YouTube channel as well that we're looking to do some more content with. At the moment, it's mostly prank videos, the X Media <laughs> uh, YouTube channel. But I'm looking to do some editorial type stuff and talking about horror films and stuff as well. So there's, there's all kinds of stuff that they can do to reach out for me. But yeah, Facebook and the website is where they can buy the movies. Awesome, cool. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we actually had dear personal friend of ours, Nicholas Vince, on the show. Um, and he was giving us some advice on how to groom our facial hair. And we noticed not only do you have luscious beard locks, but luscious normal locks. So how do you maintain the look you got going on right now? Do you use a bone comb for your beard? <laughs> I mean, this really isn't the result of maintenance, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you mean Nicholas did not like come at you with the bone comb thing? Right off the no. bat, right. he was he was right at us with the bone comb, like got to make sure you groom the facial hair with the bone comb. It'll tug and pull otherwise. <laughs> this is me eking out an existence on the hard, craggy rocks of Scotland, you know. This is just how I look. <laughs> <laughs> now, Very... My partner, Sarah, she wants me to kind of groom up a little bit for the uh, Fright Fest screening that we've got next week. But, you know, it's... I don't know. I like just being a big fuzzy monster. That's... So you've got Fright Fest next week. Are you showing the black gloves next week? Or is this some of your older stuff? And it's the black gloves that is screening. Is it the premiere? Is it the premiere? Um, you... Yeah. Um, oh, so yeah, this, is, this is perfect timing for the this show to come out. One yeah. week before the premiere. Um, so if any of you guys are in the area of Fright Fest, definitely go check this out. Why don't you tell us a little bit um, about Fright Fest and the black gloves? Sure. Uh, well, the on the 28th um, of October, this Saturday, uh, Fright Fest is having, uh, it's like a, a gala event, like a one-day event, where they're showing um, all sorts of premieres. Basically, it's a great event for films that have been finished after the normal Fright Fest festival, which is in August. So they decided to put on this, this like one-day event, and so it was great to get selected for that. And we're also playing with uh, a, a great looking sci-fi horror film called It Came From The Desert which is a remake of an old Amiga video game The Giant Ants so I'm like cool you know we've got our gothic horror with Bali and we have supernatural stuff and then afterwards a movie with giant ants you know <laughs> go wrong with that uh, so yeah that'll be in that's in London of course London and uh, <laughs> folks in the UK or whatever can all drag their asses over there it's going to be too long of a trip to be, you know, worth it for a lot of you guys, you know, more than the normal regular event yes. would be. Um, but we're hoping to get more dates lined up for US festivals as well. And you know how it is. We've submitted to a pile of festivals and we're just waiting to hear back from them, really. But I need to get an excuse to go out there in the US so I can torment you guys in person. Of course. <laughs> yes. We're very you know. We're very close to Cleveland, and there's the Cleveland International Film Festival. So that might be something to look into as well. Um, yeah. I'm sure they'd be, especially since this film is, like, really stylistic. For those of you that don't know, it is in black and white. Um, so that'd be something that they're not really used to seeing there. Yeah, totally. And, you know, The Black Gloves is a, it's a strange movie, right? I mean, you've got this like 1940s uh, black and white uh, film noir and evocative of 
the kind of films that me and Sarah like, like uh, Sunset Boulevard and uh, the, the Alfred Hitchcock film Rebecca as well, and or The Innocence and The Haunting. Films are pretty inspirational for Guillermo del Toro as well. And um, although you know we're into this kind of classic filmmaking, we, and we experimented with that style, we also got all this really weird subversive shit that are topical modern kind of subjects, uh, stuff to do with gender and and like and, and role reversal and obviously really weird freaky dark shit because that's what we're about. Yes, <laughs> as a horror film production company. So it was like, could we take an old style of film that? We'd be more known for quirky dialogue and, and, and interesting characterizations, trying to break away from the archetypes, and at the same time bring in this very modern sense of horror and, and topical themes. So it's it's a really weird film. I mean, God knows it's, it's freaky and, and, and horrific, but at the same time, it looks one way and it acts another, and that should be really interesting to see how how folks react to that. Yeah, it should be. You're kind of known for. Um, when you have a horror film, um, there's always more to it. Like, for example, with The Unkindness of Ravens, it's not only a horror film, but it's dealing with PTSD and other issues that people can relate to. And we'll talk about that film a little bit later. Um, but why don't you take us back to how you first got started with filmmaking? Oh, man. We're going back that far, are we? <laughs> hey, we went back to Nicholas's birth. He told us about... Oh, man, we went all the way back. It was uh, <laughs> from day one to modern day, like... <coughs> well, um, originally, um, originally I was at, I was at university, um, uh, University of St. Andrews, and I was, I was actually... Uh, it's going to be a minister for the Church of Scotland, which is like uh, it's a really kind of progressive, liberal Christian church, and like this kind of state church here, you know. And it was good because I remember my professor saying, "Laurie, you'd be a great minister. You can still have a sex life, and you'll get a housekeeper as well." And I was like, "Wow, this 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 could really work out for me." Um, good deal. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah, around. But you know. Uh, I was always kind of a hippie, though, really. I, you, know, you know, I was killing a lot of different weird ideas about spiritualism and everything like that. But doing like uh, that as a job, um, uh, I wasn't so sure. I kind of fell into it. In fact, um, where I'm from in Scotland, which is like a kind of blue-collar part of a very blue-collar country, uh, the county of Fife, the, the idea of working in film would just be insane. You know, it would be like, no, forget that. So... Anyway, it was when I was doing my exams uh, on that degree that there was a couple of international students and they were talking about their trials and tribulations making a film. And just by kind of listening in on their discussion um, during the course of it, I just thought, wow, you know, when I was a kid, I was, all I thought about was making films. And yet here I am, uh, and this would have been when I was in my, you know, very early 20s, I was thinking like, geez, why am I not trying to do something creative? I loved writing stories, I loved, you know, loved horror movies. Like yourselves, I grew up trying to recreate my own video rental store in my, you know, living room or sitting room with VHSs <laughs> of all my favourite horror movies. Well, we can relate. <laughs> sure. So, like, um, from that, I, I, did, I did a range of things, like acting and writing and stuff like that, working my way up to kind of almost getting the, 
I guess you could say courage to try and make films, which sounds silly, but perhaps, but because it just seems so daunting uh, from where I was from and getting access to equipment and everything, and because nobody else was really doing it either, um, it, you know, it took a while. Um, so, I mean, I'm 36 now, um, and I've been making feature films for like the last seven years. Um, it took a while for me to eventually get to the point where I would meet Sarah Daly, who's my partner and uh, and creative partner as well. And, <laughs> um, and she really helped as well um, form the, a team that could really just go at it and make feature films. So, so as an aside, I would say if anyone's interested in making feature films, whatever your age, you know, just go for it, whether you're 70 or like 15, you know. Um, but yeah, so the first, the very first feature film I made was Whiteout, which was made with a crew of, uh, let's just say it was a, you know, not a very high budget film. Um, one that you can see on Amazon Prime that is, is long lost to the to the knowledge of man. <laughs> and uh, from some of the proceeds from that, um, I was able to do Lord of Tears and we did our very first Kickstarter for that once the film was in post, which was unexpectedly successful. Uh, this is like more 2011 type territory now, I think. And it just started the momentum. Um, had some ups and downs, mostly with uh, with my work as a producer, trying to get finance for films, learning the ropes. Because the industry is a son of a bitch that you wouldn't believe, you know. <laughs> well, I believe. And, uh, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> and at, at the same time, although a director, um, I'm, I'm a producer as well. Most of my work is as, is as a producer, even though I'm most passionate about directing. And it's simply because when you're not producing your own films, man, honestly, you know your hands are tied, your control creatively, it's really shit. Trying to get a career as a director is a whole other ball game that um, that most of my peers do. And just listening to them just makes me think like, sounds like a day job, you know, half the time you're not doing what you want. Yeah. So anyway, um, we spent as, I spent as much time trying to find folks that were passionate about the kind of films we wanted to make, as well as making them. So Lord of Tears paid for the Unkindness of the Ravens, which in turn has helped pay for the Black Gloves. And it's kind of, it's kind of changed our company as well. We're reaching a stage now where it's like, it's, it's not so much just about the films I'm looking to make, but what we're hoping to do with, uh, with Hex, our company, is to try and kind of build up what could be like the first grassroots horror studio that is producing feature films that I'm getting money in, but that we're also really trying to work with the horror community, with the fans, to try and encourage them to get involved in filmmaking and storytelling as well. Um, we've got a short film anthology that we're producing at the moment called For We Are Many that's been inviting short film submissions that we're kind of packaging up and stuff like that, and we've been lending gear and all this kind of stuff. So it's it's more than even just the films. It's about trying to build a company and a studio that is radically different to the kind of homogenized kind of commercial horror that other studios are making, but something that can support independent voices that want to arise from the, the horror community and from among fans specifically. Cool. Any comments, Jared? Any yeah. Comments? Um, let's let's go back one more time. You got your you got your little uh, your video shelf and everything. What were you going to the most back then? Like what movies in the horror genre? Like, cause it's October. 
Yes. And so that's what everyone wants to talk about is horror movies. Everyone likes horror movies now for one month. Yes. <laughs> um, what What are some of your favorite horror movies and what really influenced you as a filmmaker? Man. <coughs> Because well, your movies aren't um, your movies aren't just the like standard freaking this guy walks in and is chopping everybody up and then you know looks at the camera cracks the one liner and the credits yeah. roll you know what I mean like <laughs> it's more psychological like, videos are like that you know I mean but my movies yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, yeah well as a, as a, it's funny you know because you would think right that as, as a fan of horror you would want to make films like the type of stuff you enjoy watching but that's like not always the case you know like so for example say like our films right are maybe maybe a little bit like i don't know if this would be the right way to describe them slightly arty horror but i can see it I, I yeah don't, i don't I, yeah i don't know because sometimes i've been watching a lot of the a24 horror films and i think like geez that's so arty and and drama based, our films are definitely not like that. So I'm not quite sure where to position them. But when I when I watch horror films, though, I quite like um, ridiculous, slightly cheesy horror films as well that I wouldn't dream of making myself. No offense to them, but just because you know when you make a film, it's a year and a half of your life. But anyway, so uh, let me tell you some of my favorite movies. So like for my VHS temple that I had, you know, some of the stuff you already know you know, goes without saying. Stuff like Evil Dead, which totally blew me away when I first saw it. Um, I, I was groveling to my mum when I was a kid for years when I saw the giant painted poster on the video store that we would walk past, you know, I was going to primary school, I was like, I must see this movie, you know. <laughs> Begged her to give it to me for my for my birthday when I was a kid and all I got was a collection of Enid Blyton's famous five children books. Instead, it was... Oh God, it's, no! It's, 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 it's a bitter disappointment that I live with to this day. For for a lot of British horror viewers, myself included, we grew up on Hammer, you know. Yes. So like all the Hammer horror films and AIP films with Vincent Price, like the Roger Corman ones, you know, like The Fall of House of Usher, Mask of the Red Death, like oh, the Terror. They, it, they they blew me away because they were like they were just brilliant characterizations, and there was sure there was. An element of camp to them, which we didn't appreciate at the time, which I've certainly embodied in some of my films. Um, but I loved those movies. And um, but then, as I was getting older, like the getting exposed to more adult horror films, which uh, you know ones that are like ahead of their time, like Evil Dead or Hellraiser, for example, as well, and stuff like that. It was like wow, your know, horror can be really like out there, you know, really more adult. The, the thing as well, um, I mean, these are the kind of horror films that I, that I really like watching. I've also got a soft spot for uh, creature features as well, like, um, you know, stuff like critters and slugs and s- stuff like that. I love, I love critters. Yeah. Critters 1 and 2. Um, <laughs> I can't make it to 3. One of my favourite horrors is the uh, Frank Darabont penned remake of The Blob as well. The 1980s Blob. Yeah. Yeah. That, that gave me nightmares for a long time when I saw <laughs> the poor guy screaming inside the Blob practical effects. Like, um, and then, you know, like in Britain, we've got the whole gothic tradition that we take quite seriously. So you have like 
like well, some of the films that I mentioned that had inspired uh, the Black Gloves, films like The Innocence and The Haunting. This is really creepy chillers, these black and white chillers that would kind of get under your skin without being gory or stuff like that and and pff, that kind of stuff. Plus, I'm also a big fan of the J-horror films as well. Like when, when they first came out, you know, when you first got like the Japanese ring and grudge and stuff like that. You know, that and, and uh, a lot of the Kyo Kurosawa, is it Kyo, I can never, Kyoshi Kurosawa? Akira, you know, Akira Kurosawa. Oh, well, I love the Kira Kurosawa. But oh, okay, it's a, diff- it's a different Kurosawa. There's all yeah, kinds of Kurosawas running around over there. <laughs> um, the, the, yeah, because the other chap I'm thinking of did um, Pulse, you know, Cairo, and the recent film Creepy as well, and stuff like that. But yeah, Kira Kurosawa was, like so many directors, also a massive inspiration to me as well. Uh, you know, in fact, it was probably his films that actually got me into filmmaking. I was really like, oh, there was one night when I was young, I was just, I was really depressed, I was fed up of everything. And I was channel hopping at like 3 a.m. or something. And there was this like four and a half hour, like Akira Kurosawa medical drama called Redbeard, where Toshiro Mifuni plays this provincial doctor that brings hope to a village. And I was like, by the end of it, a total mess. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's make films. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, those those are some of my inspirations. Very cool. So, humble beginnings from watching Evil Dead and The Blob. Um, you decided you were into film, but you actually started in commercials and short films. How did all that come up? And you've actually worked with some big names in the short films. Um, so, how did all that mm-hmm. come about? Well, um, so, so I'm in Fife, and I'm having to pay the bills. And the idea of doing that with feature films, at the time, felt like a mile off. I also hadn't met Sarah yet, who really helped by working together to make things happen. And so it just became the idea that, well, if I do commercials, if I do corporate videos and gumps like that, basically, then I could pay for nicer cameras and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? It kind of went like that. Um, when I met Sarah, I'd become a little bit cynical about what I was doing. And the, the dream of actually making films was kind of starting to fade a bit. But meeting Sarah, uh, she was so, like, she was so up for trying to chase this dream you know now she was in ireland and i was in scotland um but she was doing a kind of dead-end job as a like a like one of these data analysts on spreadsheets and stuff but any second that she had spare to that she was writing scripts and trying to make things happen and i was really into the girl you know as i am today and i was like i've got to try and impress sarah i've got i can't just be telling her that i do corporate videos it's time to time to chase this dream properly and and, you know, so I started making short films of her scripts. At first, to try and impress her. But then, <laughs> <laughs> then because it was like, oh, my God, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and it might sound strange, you know, the idea that you have this dream and it comes and goes. But that's what it's like. You know, when you're trying to chase something, it is nebulous. It slips between your fingers because normal life will come at you with something that you don't expect to distract you, you know. It's actually it's a constant fight to keep chasing what you want to do, whatever that might be. But in any case, with Sarah, it really got anchored because, like, um, we started collaborating, and um, and she really made me a much, much better artist. And for Sarah, um, as as we became an actual couple and a relationship, 
it was cool because she could come over from Ireland. She didn't need to do the job. And we'd save, I saved some money from the corporate business stuff. And we got placed together and we were like, right, this is like, you know, ground zero. We're going to start doing creative stuff. And, um, and so in respect to the short films, well, man, after just a few months of working together and stuff and putting material out there, uh, we got a uh, like cold call from uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And he's like, hey, bro, you know, <laughs> can we, <laughs> can I make a movie of one of your scripts, you know? And uh, I was like, totally thought it was like a prank call, you know? But I said, <laughs> okay, Sarah, you'll want to speak to her. And man, from that, we were like, we made two short films that played at Sundance and South by Southwest. And um, so Joe, uh, he was acting in them, so was Channing Tatum. And I, I was also acting in the film as well. Uh, basically, I was playing a waiter, and they were and um, and Joe and Chang Tatum were playing two guys chasing the same girl that was also in this kind of weird, like steampunkian setting in a restaurant, you know. And um, yeah, it was really cool. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, great guy, and uh, Sarah from her connection with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, he helped her by giving her cool opportunities to write for. Uh, live shows and other short films as well. So, like for example, uh, Gary Oldman's performed their script stuff, Anna Kendrick's, and even you know the singer Sia with the, the crazy blonde hair at the front. I'm you not. Know, uh, no, I'm not familiar actually. Oh man! Um, if she's really if she's really commercial, that's probably why. Because I like kind of keep out of like the current like. Music scene. Music scene, <laughs> like she did that song "Chandelier" with the little girl prancing about. No, I, still I, I, still I, I keep my music taste like generally. I'm like in the '80s and '90s with my music taste is where I like to stay yeah, and I'm, keep I'm, it that I'm way. I'm '70s and '80s myself. In any case, like uh, she performed uh, one of her. Uh, she performed a song because Sarah's a singer-songwriter as well, so she had covered one of hers. Um, and man, even Anne Hathaway like like performed some of Sarah's stuff as well, you know. So, so that's cool. And here's the thing, right? That can sound totally amazing, but it's like a lot of things in create, the creative industries to actually monetize opportunities is a whole different game yeah. altogether so you would get cool personal experiences and they were really really amazing experiences um also getting a chance to meet uh, john lennon's son sean lennon or sean ono lennon as well like um he's like a friend of joe's who took us out to dinner amazing musician lovely guy this is all this kind of cool stuff that, that was kind of happening but like you would still come back and you'd be like, right, how are we going to pay the rent? You know, because yeah. <laughs> that's what it's like, you know. So that was cool, and it did give us a bit of credibility, I suppose. You know, so when you're you are trying to get investment and stuff like that. I mean, our films, like the first films, like Lord of Tears, were really low budget, like really low budget. You know, so we had to kind of work that way as well. But man, it kind of seems like a miracle even today that we've been able to grow a business slowly but surely and and it's just been from thanks to those opportunities at first and then just lots of like lots of more kind of conventional networking and going to meetings and being a producer yeah even with this hair. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what do you do in your, in your producer meetings here? Is, is the hair still flowing beautifully or, or whatever? Or, or do we have the ponytail? Are we looking a little bit more professional? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a comb silver suit. And Traditionally, you know, producer, to finance a film, producers will uh, develop a package, which is your star, your shit-hot screenwriter name, your shit-hot director, and you'll attach a distributor or a sales agent, you know, who'll normally be coming in with an advance to secure the rights to the film, maybe to a big market, and that really helps to pay for it, you know, stuff like that. And um, that's really what we don't do. You know, we're, we're really non-traditional with the, the kind of financial packages. Um, I mean, for us getting investment for our films, it's most, I mean, a lot of it is through crowdfunding, like our Kickstarters, um, like the Kickstarter for the Black Gloves and some of the money we got after the Kickstarter as well for some, like, like some investors as well. Um, it's like, that was significant. The, the equivalent of getting pre-sales, say, for, like, say, USA and UK from a, a distributor for a, a low-budget, a decent low-budget kind of film. And I work with tax stuff as well. Like, as, as you can imagine, tax rebates and schemes are a big part of film finance as well. Every country's got its own kind of special offering to try and tempt you to shoot there. And so we utilise the, the ones that the UK has, of course, which are fairly, you know, easy to use. So there's that. And we're also a distributor as well. And that's a part of our business that we're still growing. You know, it's, it's young. But from the sales of our films, from the crowdfunding, and from some of the rebates we get on what we've spent making a film, that is kind of how we've been doing it. And it's tricky. It's not easy. But the reason that we try and do it like that is so that our company can retain the rights to the films as well so that because when you do a distribution deal you don't have the rights anymore and and um and that's just i mean as a producer i've actually worked with distributors for other clients as well sometimes freelance it's just brutal <laughs> it's just yeah. it's like it's like a road to anguish and poverty in so many cases that it, it kind of led me to go on a different road it was a bit like okay say we do make less selling it ourselves because we don't have as much access to market at least we'll make something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As opposed to, oh, we made quite a bit, but the deductibles are two times what we made. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> as, as, as it is, again, as you'll hear a million times, a really tough industry. And that's why we're trying to navigate a really clever path that avoids the pitfalls and also allows us to really work in, in liaison with the horror community. Because that, after all, why rely on a corporate sales agent or a distributor if you can finance and sell films based on a relationship with people like ourselves, yeah. you know, the fans? And at the moment, I think we're one of the only companies to be really trying to chase that in a big way, at least in the genre. Yeah, like, like you said, like Kickstarter and stuff like that has really been a big tool for you. You're kind of the king of Kickstarter. Every time you put a project out, you're on the front page um, at least for the horror genre. Um, why don't you talk a little, because you do it kind of uniquely um, compared to some of the other films. Um, like, for example, when my film went on a crowdfunding site, 
we did it before we shot anything, and so the money was used to make the movie. You kind of do it in reverse. The movie's done, and then you do the Kickstarter to make um, the DVDs and the Blu-rays and all the distribution, stuff like that. And you found great success. Yeah, I mean, um, it, that started out as a matter of circumstance, uh, because when I did Lord of Tears, um, we weren't... <laughs> When I shot Lord of Tears, we had some trouble with getting money from investors to finish the film because basically someone went bust, you know, so I was like, oh, holy shit, Aaron, I'm going to finish this movie. Let's try this newfangled Kickstarter thing. <laughs> and, you know, like the goal that I set for that campaign was like, you know, 6,000 pounds. It wasn't exactly ambitious. Um, and we made like, well, we made like at, at the time, Twelve and a half on the campaign page, a few thousand more um, on PayPal, and then within two months we'd negotiated investment deals worth in excess of about three hundred and fifty thousand pounds. You know, which we never expected because of the attention that the campaign had attracted, um, and that's uh, with our partners, um, a company that's really worked with as well called Dark Dunes Productions as well. That's based in the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, there's, other, I mean, there's loads of other companies that are working with us as well, you know. Basically, guys that are passionate. Um, that they might not have the time to, to do everything like what we're doing because we're, like, a production services company as well. So, like, our team is, like, camera guys and everything, whereas um, some of these other companies are interested more in investing in films and having a part to play in the process but not manage the whole process you know so so kickstarters are interesting because it's not just about the money you raise um it's about a lot of weird cool magical things that can happen as a result of lifting the profile of your project and so from the kindness of ravens which we did about i think two years after that or a year and a half or something we raised something like forty-five thousand. so it was a lot higher um a lot of that was based on uh our our supporters and customers um, who bought copies of the film that we were distributing. So, you know, they'd sign up to the website, they'd get an email, and then they'd, you know, get an email from me saying, hey guys, we've got a Kickstarter going on, you know, please help. <laughs> and uh, the Black Gloves is like, I think 65,000 or 66 that it made. But, you know, we got an extra like 15 um, within a week from that Kickstarter as well, making it unofficially like more 80. I think, I, I mean, I imagine it plateaus at a certain point. I know that with our films, that we're not trying to just make them crazy and crazier budgets. You know, we kind of like to have a, like, a sustainable level. Um, but, but, yeah, we'll, um, we'll have another one next year as well. Sneak <laughs> um, peek. I'm sure that was already shot and everything as well. Perhaps it is, man. <laughs> cool. Um, so why don't you well, tell us a little... Say, though, um, it doesn't matter, though. I mean, doing it before your film is cool as well. You know, it's just we set ourselves a time schedule and, and we were able to do it like this. See, if I didn't have any money to make to shoot the movie, I would be on Kickstarter tomorrow to raise a budget for a new movie. Yeah. You know, so. so why don't you tell us about um, the first big pe- feature, Lord of Tears. Um, how, did, how did you and Sarah kind of come up with the story together and just tell us all about the development of that well uh lord of tears 
the man, it's fine. You go, I should have to think back to 2012. Oh, those brief sober <laughs> moments I had in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't the world supposed well, to end in 2012? <laughs> I, think, I think I actually shot it in 2000. Oh, no, yeah, March 2012, or was it? And anyway, um, so yeah, the idea for Lord Tears, man. Well, basically, um, classic gothic haunted house film. Um, and it's funny, you know, when, when me and Sarah were developing that idea, we, we don't tend to think too cynically about it. You know, like, for example, we don't sit, like, thinking, right, this should be a haunted house product, and this should be a slasher product. Um, what actually led us to Lord of Tears was um, just this idea of how cool it would be to... Oh, now I remember, right. I've, I've, I remembered now. <laughs> um, it, was, it was how cool it would be to make something like a Slenderman-type movie. Right, that was it. Because we like we loved the idea of, um, I mean, we love we loved Slenderman, um, but we knew we could make a Slenderman film, um, and there wasn't everything about Slenderman that we, we were into either. It was more the idea that it was wow, an immortal stalker, you know, that it's this it's, it's this figure that you see that that is like an omen of death and and disaster and is mysterious, you know, and. Um, so with uh, respects to Lord of Tears, I was like looking through my old notes for like religious history, things like that that I'd studied. Um, I mean, I'm a massive aficionado of history and the history of religion and mythology and everything like that. And so I was trying to find something that could be the the voice, the entity of the stalker um, that would bring about disaster to people's lives that maybe hadn't been depicted in the horror genre much so eventually like uh you know we, we end up with the god moloch who's like a god of wish fulfillment that would demand human sacrifice and had all this cool kind of esoteric stuff about it and had been worshipped in various forms for centuries um but the one of the problems though was that his depiction was normally that of a bull like a brass bull and i was like shit i can't have a movie with this stalker dude having a cow's head, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> that would be very scary. But then we found that this, like, that this cult worshipped Moloch in a different depiction as an owl as well, sometimes conflated with uh, Minerva's owl, which is a, a god of wisdom that is depicted, I think, on the US currency as well, actually, a little owl. Um, and we were like, okay, if it can be an owl, you know, like anthropomorphically depicted humanoid with an owl's head, and that's kind of working. And when we were looking at like designs and ideas, we came across these set of uh, Victorian Christmas cards that showed animals, you know, dressed in little Victorian suits and things. And it was like, oh, of course, let's get let's get the owl dude in like a cool kind of Victorian costume, so he's wearing a tail suit. And um, and we can give them, and then we start thinking about the language you can speak in as well, like because Sarah likes writing poetry and and uh, and weird nonsense kind of stuff as well, like words and things like that. About like the strange kind of language you would get in Clockwork Orange and stuff like that. So we were like, well, let's let's have the Alman speak like that as well, and we'll try and get a really cool um, actor with a menacing voice. You know, we went with David Schofield for that that one from like American Werewolf in London and stuff like that and um and that's 
and the story kind of was crafted around him, really. So, like, the, we, we tend to start by just finding that cool inspiration first and then creating a story around it, almost as if we were the documentarians of what would happen if certain people came into contact with this weird and, and horrible thing. Yeah. Cool. Um, so what was product? I remember we spoke a couple years ago and you told me you shot the entire movie in 14 days, I believe. Um, and for me, like, I can't even imagine cause it took my movie two months to shoot. Um, so I can't even imagine how was it shooting it so quickly? Yeah, that was, it was great fun, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? You only no, had no. the two weeks. Did you have only the two weeks to shoot or is this, that's how it worked out or were you under time constraints? Yeah, I think, I mean, 14 days. Yeah. In fact, I'm, in fact I, don't, I don't even think it was 14 days. I think it was actually 13 days. I might have misrecollected when I said 14 we were nine days we were at the main house, the mansion, and then I remember shooting for three and a half days uh, back in my hometown of Kirkcaldy in Fife. Um, and, you know, the nights were insane. They were just really late nights. We were pushing ourselves to the, to the max, stamina-wise. Um, actors, uh, Alexandra Hume and Ewan uh, Douglas, or, um, they were great. They, they so knew their lines um, that a lot of the time the film was cutting on one or two takes because that was how fast the time was having to be. And you also notice with the cinematography as well that it's um, it's quite modest. I mean, there's no tracking shots, for example, or anything like that, you know, which saves a lot of time. Like, you set up a tracking shot, you could kiss goodbye to 40 minutes, you know, put it on the sticks, it could be like 10, 15 minutes, you know. Um... And then obviously the handheld sequences are a lot faster. You can ramp that up. And plus we were lucky as well. We had a great team. They didn't complain about lack of sleep. They're mostly just <laughs> like our friends, you know. I mean, honestly, every day I think we were totally giddy because of lack of sleep. We were just totally, it was like absurd humour all the time <laughs> during yeah. the making of that film. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's just what you do. It's what you can do. It's what anyone can do if they want. And I look back at Lord of Tears compared to the other films, which have had more production demands each time. And I think, fuck, you know, because like a lot of people really like Lord of Tears and it sells quite well still. And it's like, it, it, what it taught me, and there's a lesson I'm still trying to appreciate, is that it's not really the production standard that is as important as just uh, the ideas behind it. Like, you can make a film with really modest resources, but if you've got some good ideas, then fucking save yourself a lot of money and time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just shoot with what you've got, you know, and not, and not panic about trying to sell the real deal. Because it really doesn't make much difference to the, as much as you'd think to customers or distributors. Did you have any comments or questions about Lord of Tears? Man, I, I watched it so long ago. Um, I just remember... I just remember seeing the trailer for it. I think on Facebook. I think we, me, you, and Miles all like blew up that trailer. We were like, "We got to see yeah, this." Yeah, like I was like, "Oh shit!" Like I, it was just such a creepy trailer, and it was just like, oh, and then you got it, thank God, because I'm yeah. always broke. And, so... <laughs> and my face is on the actual Blu-ray. You did like some sort of promotion where like you send in the photo. And then they put your face on it. Really? So, so that was cool. Yeah. Did you show me that and I just forgot all about it? Or did you just like discreetly 
Put the I don't blue know. Right. I, I didn't want to draw too much attention to myself. <laughs> That's, uh, well, that was such a cool thing, though. I loved doing that. Um, it, sometimes it's a bit tougher to do that now because our overheads are a bit higher. Like, see, when I was doing that, like, for your disc, I was sitting there on the computer like, yeah, right. Let's this let's, let's put some freaky shit on Buddy's face. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like this next guy, you know, or, or, or girl, you know, I'll be like, right, we're gonna have this one's eyeballs gonna get ripped out and their their picture will stick on the desk, you know. Oh, printing them and you know, when we talk about the grassroots stuff, it's like that's the kind of thing that I think is really what I'd love to see more of. Um because like there has to be a deeper connection between folks that are watching horror films are fans of horror films and the filmmakers because at the moment they're separated by distribution companies sales agents and and things that won't always have the the the, the concerns of fans first you know and plus like i said before i really want to encourage fans of horror to get more involved creatively as well um sure i don't mean for them to be getting big obligations or work or stuff like that but just even for the interaction to be part of a community that is creating cool horror art and to have a say in it as a fan, rather than just bitch about something you don't like on Reddit, that yeah. that is an exciting option, a possibility that needs more exploring. And it leads to stuff like your face getting mutilated on a special disc. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the evolution of where it heads towards. So Lord of Tears, obviously a big success. The Owlman character... Um, is all over like the indie like underground horror scene. He's, he's all on, over the. He's on the shirt. He's on the right shirt right now. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's a shame when you put on so much weight that only your own promotional t-shirts fit you anymore. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it used to be a button shirts, you know, but nah. <laughs> cool. So yeah, Lord of Tears, huge success. Um, the un- unkindness of ravens was after that. Um. And that one, and also like on the DVD, you go on a big history lesson of the mythology with the Celtic stuff. Um, but yeah, how did that? When you guys were pitching that idea, how did you guys decide that's what you wanted to do? Oh man, yeah. I remember me and uh, my director of photography, Gavin Robertson, and Sarah as well. Um, we had this little creative exercise where we were like, right, let's all go and think of pitches and ideas and things like that. And there were all kinds of weird ideas. But two of the things that we quite liked was the idea of exploring uh, an ex-soldier dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. We liked that. Um, mainly because we'd had some experience working with veterans by uh, providing them some video workshops. Back when I was doing the corporate stuff, I, I did some video training. And I was really touched by their experiences. And so I thought it'd be cool to kind of tell a story that could pay tribute to the kind of, the, the courage of people, not even just soldiers, but anyone affected by PTSD and overcoming their personal demons. But like, um, but that alone would be a drama, you know? And, and, um, and, and in a funny way, because horror is so flexible, it has more power to explore nightmares than drama does. You know, on its yeah. own. So I thought, right, you know, let's, if, you know, these guys were talking about personal hell, like that I couldn't imagine. Horror is where we're going to explore that personal hell. Now that was mine. Uh, Sarah had researched stuff that she was really into, uh, relating to the basically the mythology of the Valkyries from Norse mythology and Celtic mythology. 
So traditionally, the idea of the Valkyrie was that it was effectively a bit like a spirit or an angel, you could say, of war that would decide who would live and who would die on the battlefield. And so this idea of, right, okay, this entity that decides who lives and dies in the battlefield. Um, in Norse mythology, they kind of looked like demons, but would eventually, as time went on, become the kind of like the sexy ladies that we know of today. Uh, I got one. I got my like disc golf set that has a Valkyrie on it, and it's, de- <laughs> it's definitely a sexy lady on that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, um, but originally they were more like kind of demons, like... Kind of like, uh, you could say like workers at the underworld, you know, the North Walmart of the underworld. And, uh, <laughs> but then in Celtic mythology, which shares things in common with Norse mythology as well, because as you can imagine, these cultures pour over each other in Europe. Um, they had their own idea of the Valkyrie that was depicted more as a raven uh, and, and, and crows. So it was like, okay, demonic Valkyries, fuse them with ravens because ravens are fucking awesome anyway and when we saw some of the early pictures of the demons some of them had weapons and things and we were like oh that's cool let's combine that and um, and just during our research as well we found totally unrelated to the norse and the celtic was in shinto japanese mythology as well they had a thing called the karasu tengu which is a kind of spirit that, for all intended purposes, is a samurai with a crow's head as well. So I was like, oh, well, there we go. Okay. <laughs> with crow heads, Valkyries, and like Celtic raven demons, I can see a marriage happening here, you know? And so we, so in Ravens, which is um, as a horror film, the, the ravens manifest as one of two things, depending on how you wish to interpret the film. Uh, one as as a psychological manifestation of the character's survivor's guilt, um, depicted by this spirit of who would decide, you know, who decide who would live and who would die. Of course, because our hero is, you know, obviously punishes himself for his failure to save his friend. Um, that or slash and. Uh, the idea of this being like a kind of horrible shadow world parallel to our own in which these things inhabit and have detected him. Um, in the film, we, it makes out that if you reach such a low point that these things can start to sniff you out and kind of gather around you and then try and take you over the edge so they can bring you back to their to their realm. And I don't know if you noticed, but there's actually an Easter egg as well in that film that relates to the Owlman from Lord of Tears. Jared is not familiar, but... I, I, I haven't seen Unkindness of Ravens yet. Um, but Buddy has informed me now that a lot of these movies are, are connected. I mean, we love the kind of mythologies that like H.P. Lovecraft developed as well, stuff like that, and we thought, you know, it'd be damn cool to really flesh out this idea of an interconnected kind of mythology. Not something that that you need to know to enjoy the film, but something that if you're into and, and you enjoy the extras, especially some of the, some of the extras on Ravens are really trippy, like the Wheel of Pain. Like, it's like... <laughs> it's just like um, one, one of the extras on Ravens is like it's 25-minute delve into weird... Like occultism inspired by the Raven Warriors, it's, it's probably creepier than the film, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if you if you read that and you 
talk it all up, then there's Easter eggs in the films, and we'll probably do like do more of that. Um, but yeah, we like we like to kind of they're part of the same kind of universe, you could say. And then Lord of Tears as well. Um, we actually foreshadow the Ravens as well, um, and their connection to the Elman. If you notice with Lord of Tears, before anything horrible kind of happens, um, we have crows and ravens. So we had some ideas even then as well of a lot of role they would play. Yeah, so Unkindness of Ravens is a really powerful film. And one of the things I think, well, one of the best aspects of the film, I think, is actually the music. Um, would you be able to talk a little bit about, because Sarah did a lot of the music, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, she did. Um, and, and a few of her friends as well. Uh, Joseph Ruddleston as well did some uh, beautiful uh, tracks as well. <clears throat> and uh, Yusuf Khalil, this uh, Syrian uh, composer, did some of the kind of more electro kind of stuff as well, um, and kind of orchestral style stuff. Yeah, the, the the music for every film we make is like just so important to us, and we always release a, a music CD soundtrack with the very physical release, and um, and the music is you know like 99% original. Um, we take the creativity of, the creative process of music production as seriously as, as we do the film because it's part of the story being told. And plus it's a really cool thing as well. Um, you know, you could take that CD soundtrack and just experience all this this fire stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but for Duncan and the Ravens, we were inspired by like, uh, kind of like offbeat 70s films, you know, so there's a kind of, like a, you could say there's a kind of a folk sound to it, but it's kind of a subversive kind of like take on folk music. Um, and most of the songs are adapted from like uh, like 16th, 17th century songs, you know, that would have been sung by soldiers like hundreds of years ago. Jesus. And, and then updated into kind of like the kind of modern songs. But yeah, that's 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 one of the funnest processes, and like with the black gloves as well, um, it's that's been a, a tricky process as well because like its music is all orchestral, so yeah. but we can't afford to hire a symphony orchestra, so we've been having to talk with loads of violinists and cellos all playing their parts individually and then getting combined. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <what? laughs> yeah, but but I mean that film too's got a really beautiful kind of Bernard. Um, was it Bernard Herrmann kind of uh, soundtrack um, uh, someone can correct me on the comments if I'm wrong on, on Bernard's <laughs> surname uh, but I'm sure no star reviews will be right on top of it yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the composer for the Alfred Hitchcock films you know like Cycle and, uh, oh okay and yeah it's, it's kind of got that kind of vibe did you have anything about because you haven't seen it was there anything you were curious about the Unkindness of Ravens uh, I, no, because I want to just see it for myself and just kind of, you know, do that whole thing. Well, you can borrow it after this. All right, cool. I think <laughs> I asked to watch it with you, like, a Last few year. weeks. Like, a did few, I? I can't remember. I can't. I, I definitely did at some point, and it just never happened because we don't actually hang out outside of this podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ravens is a strange film. I mean, like, you watch the first, like, I mean, they'll not give anything away, but um, you watch the first half 
you think you know what it is and you think you know what's going to go on and you think you know how it's probably going to end. And then I really, really fuck with you on the second half and it just goes into places, horrible places and weird places <laughs> that you wouldn't imagine. Um, and, you know, um, with the Unkindness of Ravens, although it's been out for a few months, there's a lot of work to do still in actually marketing it and putting it out there. And Because with the, the Owlman, for example, Lord of Tears, I mean, the biggest success that film had wasn't until about a year, year and a half after its release, when videos that we produced um, of the Owlman pranks and stuff like that went viral. And so we've got this really weird approach to distribution where it's almost like a long-term kind of marketing strategy. Yeah. You know, where you're kind of slowly letting folks get to know what the villains are like and what's different about them. And with the, the Ravens, it'll probably be that weird kind of like occult stuff that is in the extras of the Blu-ray that we'll be putting out more material like that and artwork and bringing people to the film through really weird ways for like the next... 12, 24 months whilst making other movies. <laughs> anything else from you? Do you have anything else? Okay. I, uh, yeah, I already said. <laughs> okay. Just check. So, obviously, the Black Gloves premiere. Well, when people see this, it'll be premiering tonight. Actually, this will come out on Saturday. Um, so, obviously, I haven't seen the film. No one's seen the film aside from you and the rest of the crew, I'm assuming. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Black Gloves? Because I just know what was in the trailer. I just know what I read on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, <coughs> The Black Gloves is uh, a film that at first would appear to be like a mystery chiller, um, kind of like a, like a suspense noir film. And... Part, and there's there's a play on the style that's similar to films of the period that's inspired by where um, where his style is, is influenced by kind of snappy dialogue and, and witty dialogue and things like that. Do you guys remember an old um, horror film called The Old Dark House? With Boris Karloff, absolute classic. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> the film, film's amazing. <laughs> Do you remember that light? There's a line, an unexpected comic line, where it's like, have a potato, you know, in that movie. <laughs> um, there's, there's parts of the film that are slightly funny, like with a very thin, beer black comedy and satire. Mm -hmm. And then it can suddenly twist to really pull your guts. It's a film that kind of like takes you on a journey where, again, you think you know where, what you're getting and where it's probably heading. And, and then it just gets more dark and more twisted and strange and uncomfortable as well. Um, and certainly creepy. And, and again, I can't spoil things, but it's not a predictable journey. Um, it's a film that could at times appear quite beautiful. Like it's got a very kind of classical style cinematography. It's all tracked and, and like, you know, hazed and fogged and everything like that but it has a kind of black heart behind that beauty um it's quite a psychological film as well you'll be really trying to guess the motives of the characters as 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 they seem to change as well um and of course behind it all you have the, the owl man as well um i would say that 
I am really interested to see what people like yourself think of the film because yeah. even when I watch it, it feels like an enigma. Because we've set out to make something so different, um, we have had um, there's one. Uh, I think there's one chap, a critic, that has had a, an advanced peek at it for the Fright Fest event, um, to, and um, and I'll get you guys sorted out with the screener as well. But um, he was like, "Whoa, that wasn't what I was expecting," and he was like, "That is, that's good, but that's really weird." Oh. <laughs> 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 Um, what I would like is for folks to see it as a subversive take on classic storytelling style films. I would say as well that as a, as a film, um, it'll feel like a prequel to Lord of Tears as well. Um, and there's certainly bits of it that are cute, like in Lord of Tears. <laughs> like it's, it's got a sentimental attitude towards its characters. Although we like to then, you know, torture these characters and do freaky shit to them to make them feel bad. But it's not like, and this might sound like a wider criticism against another cultural development in filmmaking, but it's not got one of those cool, detached perspectives which I've noticed in, in some like modern festival, slightly hipster horror films, where the characters... No, no character seems likable, and everyone seems kind of detached, like they're talking to walls, you know. And it's like, and it's got that cool for too cool for school kind of thing. This is this is something that might feel kind of old-fashioned, and at the same time be perverse, without thinking it's smarter than the audience watching it. If that makes sense. Yeah. I'm basically, talking about most of H24's output, you know. That's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't like E24 films, but i Um, so yeah, besides the mythology, um, one of the other things that kind of ties your films together is Jamie. He's in all three of them. Um, what's it like working with him and how, how is it, because all of his characters are different. So what's it like seeing his versatility as an actor and just what's he like to work with? Well, um, Jamie features a lot in our films and he just makes wonderful bacon sandwiches in the morning, so <laughs> <laughs> you can't replace a talent like that. So you know, uh, Jimmy is a, is a is a he's just a great guy. I mean, the thing is, it's like you guys with your show. You know, you like working with your friends, and it's like that with Jamie. Jamie is a really gifted actor, and and I expect he'll go places and eventually become too difficult for me to afford. But the present, luckily I can. <laughs> um, but like since Lord of Tears and and with just since I've known him, he's always been fearless. Like he's the first guy to jump in a muddy pond or through a ring of fire. Um, he just throws himself into any role and every role, and he really cares, like about his performance. Like and then kind of Sir Evans, he did. Um, he was like living homeless for a few days in Edinburgh to try and get an appreciation for the characters' experiences and stuff like that. And most actors wouldn't put themselves through that crazy kind of stuff. You know, he really wants to take every film as an opportunity to show the very best that he can do. And that's the kind of energy you need from everyone casting through. And it's, you know, it's contagious, that kind of energy. It's like, yeah, let's, let's have that guy back. I don't care if it's the same face, we'll, give him a beard, we'll take off the beard, we'll change his jacket, you know, he's a new dude. Plus, I think, in a way, 
it's kind of cute. It's a bit like what I, what I like about the Hammer films um, as well. You know, you would get your Peter Cushing or you'd get your Christopher Lee and these kind of familiar acting faces. Yeah. Um, even American Horror Story plays off that as well. Um, you know, when you see Jessica Lang again, it's like, ah, okay, cool. So, yeah, I think I probably I quite like having the same kind of actors. Um, I mean, we do have new actors as well. I've got Macarena Gomez in her first English language film since Dagon with Stuart Gordon in, in the Black Gloves. So we'll keep expanding our actor family, but I think it's good to be loyal to your to your cast and your crew. You know, who've been there at the start of your journey trying to help you build something. It's like, well, you know, you want to kind of like reward them and let them be part of a process that is improving. Hmm. Buddy, why don't you ever make me bacon sandwiches in the morning? I don't because we don't hang out outside of this podcast. Uh, well, I mean, you were here this morning. You could have. <laughs> I could. I could have whipped something yeah, up. Yeah, you could have whipped start. something up before we started today. <laughs> That's cool. But you see some other directors kind of do that too. Like Sam Raimi, he's always got his brother and Bruce Campbell around somewhere in those damn yeah. movies. They're cruising around somewhere yeah. in there. Kevin Smith has the same actors, yeah. but then when they got too big. He like had him come back for like cameos and like even, they're like self aware in the movie of like oh I'm just here for a friend <laughs> and like stuff like that. <laughs> I mean it's a, it's a really good thing when you're working with people that you already know what to expect from because filmmaking as as you guys all know you know they, they bring about so many unexpected events that any chance of reducing unexpected surprises or not horrible surprises is a good thing. So having an actor who's a known quantity, you know, it's like, oh, that's one less stress, you know? I guess that's another reason. Yeah, yeah. I, can see, I can see that. It's a lot easier to work with people that you know. Because I know, for example, like when I was working on a film, one time we had to cut an actor from a scene and rewrite everything just because he didn't show up one day. Um, yeah. So it's, it's good to have, like, reliable people um, that you can count on to always be there. So... In yeah. other words, not me. In other words, not you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, obviously, like, stylistic-wise, Black Gloves is very different than your other films. What made you want to, first of all, do uh, film noir style? Um, wh what was your thought behind that? Why did you want to do a film like that? Well, I guess... Um, well, one is because I've got a great love of those films, film noir, early cinema, stuff like that. But at the same time, though, you don't make a film just because you want to replicate what you've already seen either. Um, you know, we had all these ideas that we think are like innovative and, and very relevant to the current climate that we're in culturally, politically, you name it. Um, and so we get to explore style that is historical that we like, but we get to put fresh ideas into it that are very relevant. Uh, to the present. But I'd say as well, though, that, um, I don't know, it's funny, as different as it seems, making a, a, like a period set film, black and white, like right now, um, I think it was just because to make a film in the current uh, conventional style would just be a bit dull. Like, at the moment, like, the festival circuit, which is kind of like what we'll look at for our idea of what horror is like, really. Because you have Blumhouse say, but I mean, you know, 
like one and a half, two million dollar films that have guaranteed theatrical releases aren't really the same playing field anyway. It's like, yeah. right, good luck, guys. You do your thing. That's great. So you look at films more at your level, and um, and for us as a production company, as a distributor, we want our films to get into cool festivals that can help raise the profile of the films and help sell them and blah blah blah. And they also the festivals give you a good idea of what the style of films are that are current that are trending as they were (laughs) (laughs) and at the moment i I just wasn't really that satisfied with the current trend of of films you know this is a theory right it might sound controversial see if you guys think i'm full of shit on this one we're all about controversy on the podcast yeah this is all i'm not i'm not even sure myself if this is right it's just an idea i've got that i've been floating around but but you know when i was growing up and I was thinking like of the, the horror directors like Wes Craven, uh, John Carpenter, and all these guys. Um, they, they've come to symbolize the genre that, that we've developed, that we've loved. Um, but I was thinking, they never seemed... In any of these films, these horror films, and even horror films before then, they never seemed to imagine that their films were superior to the genre for which they were a part of. And pop culturally, in terms of like newspapers, magazines, or any of the, they say the critic darlings, they would never have chosen other films to uh, define the horror genre by. So for example, like from the highest critic to the lowest, to whatever you would want to call them. If you were talking horror, you'd be talking like Sam Raimi, Wes Craven, blah, 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 blah and these kind of films. Um, but, current trends it seems to be that there's this massive divide now between what where horror fans are at and where the critics are at when it comes to defining what is good horror and like i made a joke about a24 and um and there's many films that i enjoy uh you know and and films like that you've got for example the babadook the witch it comes at night stuff like that and and they're all great movies but it was interesting that whether they're horror movies or not is something that's debated, not necessarily just by fans, but by the filmmakers themselves. So that yeah. you would have a whole pile of press using these films to, divide, to define an avant-garde, like a, this is modern horror, but mostly by filmmakers who were quite keen to not call their own films horror. But like, oh... It's like a, it's an avant-garde drama, or it's a transgressive film that deals with themes. It's it's more than just a horror film. It's a you know like I've seen that for all those films mentioned, all those directors effectively disowned their horror credentials in interviews. And for the first time, you're actually starting to see uh, the press collect around the idea of good horror comprised of films which directors have effectively disowned horror connections to. Now, that's not to say that all directors are like that. You've got Ty West, you've got Adam Wingard, you've got all these guys making horror films or whatever. But it was just an interesting thing that on the festival circuit that that these films that would be seen as good horror are among those that would define themselves as not being really horror. And the drop-off from that is like the kind of crowd-pleasing horror films like Wolf Cop and stuff like that. So in other words, like the festival circuit seems to be comprised of either 
films like Wolf Cop or It Comes at Night. And I just I found that kind of interesting because it seemed like the kind of films that would be in between that, you know, that of the types that I would think of as solidly horror, that would represent themselves as horror with directors who would support the horror genre rather than kind of disassociate themselves with the horror genre. That isn't the case at the moment. So as someone who is directing, I guess you could say slightly, slightly arty horror films or however you would want to call yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a hint of arty in there. Yeah. Right. I would be like the first to say, nah man, these are horror films. Because horror films can be smart, they can be hilarious, they can be just, you know, slash gory and, you know, suspense, whatever. And that aspect of seeing directors not supporting the genres that, to be honest, have actually are the reason their films have been given recognition and support is bullshit. Yeah. And there's a thing that I kind of want to challenge with, with my own films. In other words, we need... <laughs> We need these kind of like uh, these guys not just to kind of like ride on the coattails of horror fans just so they get a clear yeah. opportunity to then break away from the genre. And we also need distributors to not missell these films as horror films when really they're not. Because this is another reason why we're seeing things like audience averages on sites like Rotten Tomatoes at like 10% or 15% for some films and critics at 85%. Like this is another kind of phenomenon yeah. that you can see with quite a lot of these films. And I'm I see that all the time. I see it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, Godzilla, like when Godzilla came out, the not like that's the, not the really a horror one, but yeah, the newest one. I think like it still had like good critic, but I think it like dropped off. But like the audience average was like either higher or lower. I remember seeing the discrepancy there, and I was yeah. just like, oh man. I wonder which uh, which side I'll be on. Yeah, um, but yeah, I agree with every, everything you were saying with um, the categories of horror films, like not wanting to be labeled as a horror film. Like for like probably the biggest one I can think of is Silence of the Lambs. That's a horror film to a lot of people, but it started winning a bunch of awards. So it's like a suspense thriller, they call it, and stuff to like me, that. To me, like, honestly, if we're going to get into Silence of the Lambs, and I'm going to argue with you here, that movie, to me, is nev- not even really a horror movie until, like, the closing, like, 20 or so minutes of it. Whereas, like, the rest of it is just, like, this, like, dialogue between Lecter and uh, whatever the place, the detective's name is, or whatever, that, it, that does come off to me as kind of a thriller. But, um... I'll counter that with Misery. And okay. Misery is yeah. definitely a fucking horror film. And that <laughs> one they kind of try and take out of that realm too. I mean, like, um, it's, an, it's an interesting thing to consider what feels like a horror film and what's not. But what I think is always undeniable is when directors themselves in interviews disown the genre that they've utilized to build an interest around their film. That maybe if it hadn't done so well, sure, it's a horror movie. Oh, but now it's in variety. <laughs> oh, no, it's a, it's a psychological drama. Exploring. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much more than a horror movie. Yeah. It's a... <laughs> and, and to me, like, with the, you know what I was saying about exploring PTSD with horror? It was because horror is so free, so lacking in the kind of judgmental restrictions that would apply to, say, drama or any sense of realism that it was the liberating voice that could explore 
something serious like PTSD, horror has the, the potential to be the most interesting, intellectual and serious explorer of ideas and important values as it does in being entertaining. It's, it really is the stuff of dreams and nightmares without restriction. So when you see filmmakers making out that it's the plaything of children and that they're making something more hoi polloi, it's this yeah. bullshit. So, <laughs> yeah. so as a slightly arty director <laughs> who would never want to be so arty as to be pretentious, you know, I love the horror genre. And it needs to be a family that incorporates all these different voices, not have a whole pile of them take off, you know, just because they want to be in the culture section of The Guardian online, you know? So, yeah, I agree. So I when can... <laughs> <laughs> good, it's good. Content. I feel, I feel it. I feel it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when can we expect the black gloves? Yes, good in Cleveland question. to torment us. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> at the moment, um, our Kickstarter has a date of November, but by the time uh, this video goes out on the Saturday, I'll be posting. Uh, postponement on the release of the film most mostly due to the fact that we're still working hard on the extras for the content um, and also because we've produced additional audio mixes of the film which give uh, the viewers more options um, which we, some of which we hadn't originally intended to do so we've added more um, so I would say probably I mean it'll be around like like early spring will be the most likely day um, and I'll be explaining why. Um, but the film is finished, and we could hey, we could put it out you know, for December, but it would just be shit without all the extras. Yeah. And or without the quality of extras. So, and this is actually what happened with Ravens last time as well. There was just a few months delay, um, like three or four or whatever. But it made sure that we had the time to make like four hours or something of extras, and that's what we have in mind for this film because we've got loads of cool stuff to go through. And so there might be some slight disappointment at the wait, but it's worth it once they get the package and they see that it's made with complete love and attention to detail that makes it something that they would cherish. And that's the most important feeling that we want to give to folks that are supporting us on Kickstarter and they're buying these physical products because they're expensive, you know, compared to normal, like, physical stuff. So, But you really get... A lot for the like for example with the Lord of Tears set you get it's three discs well Unkindness of Ravens was three discs as well um but it came with a feather the artwork on every box set you put out is great um so it really is worth it for the value. Oh, thanks man I'm glad that you feel that way and and that and that's that's what like a lot of folks are like um and so it means that we've got an important responsibility to make sure that every time someone buys one of our films that they get that same deep-seated feeling of satisfaction that all this love and detail has gone into the into the, the movie and, and then to all the stuff around it, you know, like with the extras. Like, um, Sarah's written these amazing short stories about the Owlman for, like, I guess you could say it's a bit like kind of creepypasta-type extras mm -hmm. that we've got for the, the new Owlman, um, for the Black Gloves film. And, like, you know, she's proper writing these as stories, you know, like, and it's funny because they'll not really be seen by, like, tens of thousands of folk. It'll just be the few, you know, the, the, the few thousand or whatever that have a physical product. So there's so much creative 
contributions and energy being put into something that will only really be appreciated by a smaller amount of people. But that's what makes it special. It's like these folks are buying something that will be genuinely unique for them. So I do suggest all the listeners out there, if you have not pre-ordered the black gloves yet, go do it. Yeah. Cool. Um, was there anything else you wanted to share about the black gloves specifically? Nah, man. That sounds, sounds cool. I mean, Macarena Gomez is absolutely amazing to work with. Um, she's total, wild, hilarious woman that can emasculate a man quicker than anything I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> she's brilliant. I mean, she is like... That sounds know, scarier than the horror movie. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of actresses, um, they'll have all kinds of special requirements, dietary requirements, everything like that, because they, they have to keep themselves so damn thin for the movies. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And uh, Macarena does this as well, but man, she smokes, she drinks, she eats anything. She's just the most like the, the the most hilarious and great fun tomboy you would ever expect to meet. Um, yeah. And there are other actresses, Alexandra Huben, that we work with a, a few times now as well. She was she was great as well. I mean, like she choreographed all those ballet dances herself, like, and she does the. 31 uh, fuertes, which are the spins, which is uh, a climax event in Swan Lake, which is like a total physical feat beyond, you know, only a few dancers can do that she that she trained herself to do. It looks amazing in the film. So, nah, amazing folks that have really put all their hearts and souls into the film. And yeah, I hope folks enjoy it. Yeah. And they can pre-order it at w.hexmedia.tv as well. So every week we do a poll. We, we make our pick for um, our, our certain theme. This week we want to do sexiest horror directors. Yep. And, and we want to know if you wanted to participate with us. We put your pick on the poll. And may the, the best se- man. Yeah, may the sexiest man win in this. <laughs> yeah, and we usually, have, we usually have a little debate about it. And um, make our cases for our guy. And we, we talk about a couple options and everything. So if you wanted to... Uh, indulge in this conversation with us we'd be honored to have you here sure all right awesome cool awesome so do you have any in the in the front of your mind right now that you want to bring up aside from yourself of course that's the obvious choice (laughs) well other guys that i think are sexy horror directors (laughs) (laughs) you don't have to be fantasizing about that a lot of a lot of our choices are are usually kind of ironic yeah and stuff my my pick this week is ironic we're usually kind of like really picking at it really trying to get something and as with horror directors i don't think anyone really comes to mind like right off the right at the um start there um god i'm really actually thinking of one that Right now, like I can't think of one that's like really, that's like God damn, like he must really get girls. Like he comes in there looking like a million bucks, talking about decapitating bodies and shit like that, and girls are coming at him. There's no one, no one striking me at the moment. Yeah, I mean most most horror directors are just kind of you know chubby guys with beards like me. (laughs) It's like. It's like going to a homoerotic bikers convention, you know, <laughs> or any normal death metal concert <laughs> for a band in the 80s, yeah. We'll be there, yeah, man. Um, 
I suppose Eli Roth probably would be. The I was gonna say that's a, that was on my list. That's a good pick. <laughs> that was on my list. Is that the top one on your list? There? No, it's in no particular order. Okay, all right. Um, I see. I see one there that I didn't even think of yeah. until now. Is, yeah. is George Romero? Yeah. You know, and uh, I, I've George got I got nothing. Man. I, I, <laughs> Rest his soul. R.I.P. And he's probably just dazzling all the women in the afterlife right now with those thick thick glasses glasses <laughs> <laughs> you know what um did did tom savini ever dir- he directed night yes, of the living dead in the 90s yes, and, he did. and maybe something else and yeah tom savini was sex machine yes so there that speaks Spec- for itself when he was in night was it uh, what was it called oh you know when he was like the the villainous knight on the motorbikes, Romero there. Oh, it? it was Night Riders, or yeah, Night Riders. Yeah. yeah, that was it. Yeah, he was pretty. You know, <laughs> he's got the stash. <laughs> he's got the stash. Uh, I was very intimidated when I met him. That you know, all the women were looking at him, and <laughs> like, <laughs> he's fifty years older than you. <laughs> Actually, um, Miles went to Tom Savini's school. Yeah, and he said that Tom Savini. Is, is like so like all he cares about is smoking weed and like womanizing. That's literally <laughs> like what Tom Savini is. <laughs> He'll like show up to class like once every few months and like say something stupid. I mean, this is just the impression that Miles gave me of Tom Savini. When I met him, he was actually a really nice guy. I've heard like conflicting stories and it wasn't like i waited in a line or anything to meet him i was like at a convention going through dvds like trying to make my selections of these overpriced convention dvds and um someone just made a comment like i pulled a movie out and he made a comment like oh yeah that seems like a good one or whatever (laughs) and i just looked to my side and tom savini was right there looking through horror movies with me and i was like oh shit you're tom savini he's like Yep. <laughs> he was cool. Cool. So and you asked him to autograph your chest. No, I didn't. I did. I've <laughs> never. I've. I don't have any high-profile like horror autographs. To me, it actually did. Someone sign my Toxic Avenger? No, I did no. not get Lloyd Kaufman on that. I'm thinking of Matt Izzy. I think I got Lloyd Kaufman's uh signature on my toxic avenger vhs that matt izzy might have given me or something yeah, weird like that i don't like know that. but i'm not that crazy about getting people to sign stuff yeah. really like cool i would rather not stand in line for hours and to get up to some guy but hey how you doing all right cool sign your thing send you on your way i've met some wrestlers and stuff in public and everything like just i just saw him walking around and i was like hey wow you're this guy like oh my god it's nice to meet you and that's just so much more rewarding to me is to just actually meet them in public and you like see how they actually are and you know the guys that i've met have been really nice and it's been cool that that that's the tricky thing about conventions yeah um it's a i guess it's just because you feel like it's just one after the other after the other, and it's, it's so nice when you get a chance to meet people. I mean, that's that's one of the main reasons uh, I'm, I'm in this industry. Actually, is it gives you a chance to work with your heroes, you know, and yeah. and, and meet them. 
and then be crushingly disappointed by them. You know, those are all important. <laughs> you realize that they are, in <laughs> fact, human beings like yourself. <laughs> Buddy just told me the other day that he heard from one of his friends that's working with Sylvester Stallone right now that Sylvester Stallone is an asshole. Well, he said he is not very humble. Oh, man. <laughs> that's soul-crushing to me. Not really. <laughs> How could he not be humble? Rocky is so humble. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I had a chance to work with uh, Malcolm McDowell from uh, Clockwork you know, yeah. yeah. Orange and stuff like that. Halloween remakes. And... No, I see that. I see someone there that, yeah. that has to do with the Halloween remake. Yeah. And and he was loads of fun. He was just like told the funniest, dirtiest jokes and. <laughs> <laughs> Just hilarious. He was a good example of a guy to meet that was like, yeah, that was cool. Same with uh, Lance Henriksen as well. Was a total, total gentleman. That's awesome. Was, awesome. Um, yeah. How was, I mean, how was Nicholas Vince to work with? You know, he was a total dick on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, when he wasn't drunk, he could work <laughs> Nah, Nicholas Vince was a... Yeah, he was just a... Uh, Nicholas is friend of yours, friend of mine, he's, he's just, he's just this kind of, like, I was going to say big lovable bear, but, but he is <laughs> a big, big lovable bear, <laughs> quite literally, um, he's just, just uh, really nice, and, um, and I met him at Fright Fest before the film, and me and Sarah were just like, oh, we have to work with Nicholas, he's just lovely. And he would be great in this this cool kind of role that he has at the start of the Black Clubs as well. Um, and I'm really excited that he's doing filmmaking and that he's part of our anthology that we're producing, the Four We Are Many short film anthology. Um, he's directed a short for that. Uh, yeah, but nah, it'd be great. I'd love to get a chance to work with uh, Barbara Wilde as well on something as well. Um, it's cool how these folks have remained in the horror community and they're writing and they're doing things. Often in collaboration with like indie filmmakers now, you know. Yeah. Awesome. So we got way off topic. Yeah, we we got into a whole other. <laughs> this realm happens here. all the time, every, every show. <laughs> but do you have a pick for the sexiest horror director of all You're time? You gonna force that on him right now? We got so well, many he, to talk about. He's our guest. He can have first pick. He is our guest. That's true. That's true. But I mean, there's so many that we could still mention, like Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> that may or may not have been my pick. That may or may not have been my pick. Man, I mean, just like uh, what was the what was the show? Alfred Hitchcock presents. Man, yeah. you don't you don't tell me you just get a little sweaty, a little gets a little <laughs> hotter in the room when he does his little monologues oh, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> the way he could just kind of drape his moves over your face, <laughs> and that one long curtains, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my pick because he's not on the list. And I, oh, I, knew, I knew you, you... Knew I was going to look at the list for for some hints there. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> I um, think I would have to say... I'd probably have to say Eli Roth. I mean, he kind of looks like the most proportionate. <laughs> <laughs> Which I can say as a disproportionate looking horror yeah. director. Yeah. <laughs> Romero's kind of, he's purport, he looks yeah, like a he, guy, he's, he's a dude. if not a little skinny yeah. in his later yeah. years. Um, 
Man, if you like that super skinny, like, <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect to Ted, if you like that super wrinkly, skinny bag of bones, <laughs> look, then George, George Romero might be your guy. Yeah. Um, oh, I had somebody, and then oh, you know who's not as far as I know, maybe in his younger, maybe in his older years, maybe got a little out of shape. I don't know. Uh, Wes Craven? Wes Craven. Was, was proportionate. And you know what? He's got that kind of sophisticated <laughs> yeah. look. You know, like, got the, like, the little little bit of facial hair. And yeah. The, the, yeah, he was... I think Wes Craven might be sexy. Yeah. To, In his older years, his nickname was the Silver Fox. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> so... Apparently. Yeah. Damn, that might be my pick. I didn't... Yeah. I was not aware of that nickname. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to go with Craven? Oh man, there's also John Carpenter who's John Carpenter. you know he had that whole like seventies like look to him that he was probably in some orgies or something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he he would be the most enthusiastic member of any seventies swingers club. Yes. <laughs> man, um I might be bouncing. You would between. need two towels for John Carpenter, yeah. <laughs> oh, I might be bouncing between a how about, <laughs> how about Roger Corman? Roger. <laughs> he certainly yeah, likes he, sex. Yes, he does. <laughs> I mean, Roger Corman is quite a mature gentleman as well. I mean, <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah. it would be a bit like making love to one of those hairless cats. <laughs> <laughs> Even now on the podcast, you're bringing these horrific images. (laughs) (laughs) A true master of your craft. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, damn! I'm just trying to think of like other directors to to bring into this, but my I was been I've been stuck on Carpenter ever since I proposed this this thing. But now that I've brought up. Wes Craven, um, man, he might be like an actual logical pick yeah. for this. Is He's got that sophisticated, sexy Is that your pick? So I, I might have to go with Wes You're going Craven. With West, so we've got Wes Craven, Eli Roth. I could go with the irony factor with Alfred Hitchcock, which was my original idea. Guillermo del mm-hmm. Toro is also another ironic pick. You like the portly fellows? You know what's not ironic is... is <laughs> Even though he's not like sexy in the just look at him sense, but Rob Zombie being a rock star. <laughs> you just keep stealing the words out of my mouth. <laughs> you know, him being a rock star has that kind of sex sexy factor to it. He's he's definitely very dirty, and some girls are into that. The gruff look. Um, I might go with Rob Zombie on this one. My pick. What do you think that he actually is like in the bedroom? Do you think it's like some sort of BDSM, or do you think he's just like? really boring that's that what i'm suspecting with rob zombie i don't know buddy i think he could be pulling your hair pressing you against the bathroom wall i don't know <laughs> i think that is a rob zombie experience probably yeah. i mean we could tweet him but i don't know if he would respond <laughs> we could ask him what is your sex life like <laughs> i think that it's all a big ruse i think that rob zombie channels this stuff in his movies and in his music but in actual Sex life, 
He's just a boring son of a bitch, right? <laughs> <laughs> he gets it all. He blows his load in his music and his movies, and then that's it. <laughs> he probably doesn't even like sex. <laughs> So, yeah, we had a great discussion this week. Um, I guess I will stick with my gut. My original pick, which was not on my list, Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock versus Eli Roth. There's got to be something sexy about Hitchcock because literally everyone on the planet just copied him after that and wanted to be like him. So there's got to be something sexy about that. Yeah. You don't just copy someone because they're not getting chicks. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? All right. Well, yeah, that's about all we have this week. Um, if you guys are out there, make sure you follow Lori Brewster on Twitter, Instagram. I don't know. If you, Hex Media has an Instagram. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the best way is if people want to just add me on Facebook, that's cool as well. Cool, cool. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook. All the links will be in the description for everything. Thank you for joining us today, Huge Lori. Huge thank you. Yes. I'm sorry that I was so <laughs> tired. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay, you livened up. But yeah, it was a pleasure well, to find... As soon as we start talking about cocks, I liven yeah. up every, every time. <laughs> but yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you, Lori. No, thanks guys for having me on the show. And you know, I always love chatting with you guys. And then I'll be happy to come back and introduce you to new strange perversions as well. So that's good. Yeah, next time you're coming out with a new movie or something, you can feel free to get a hold of us. We'll put you on the show and you can promote it to our... Fan base. <laughs> <laughs> but no, guys, just thanks so much for the support and thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you. And this is Buddy the Bruiser signing off. And this is Dynamite Jared signing off. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>